to uh, bring a Christmas message from the Gospel of John, basically. We're going through the Gospel of John in our Sunday morning and, and uh, evening services uh, uh, in the last several months, and uh, yet I want to uh, uh, base our uh, message this morning uh, from the, John, the Gospel of John, and uh, probably one of the most well-known verses in the Bible, and that is John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. It's very interesting, uh, this little uh, uh, picture that you see on the screen uh, here is really a, uh, a cartoon uh, it's not something that's not meant to be funny, but it was a cartoon that was uh, first appeared in 1934. Uh, it was uh, made by Vaughn Shoemaker, uh, and it's a famous Christmas cartoon uh, that has an interesting background. Shoemaker walked into the office of the Chicago Daily News with his rough sketch under his arm. It was a drawing of a star gleaming with a, upon a manger with the words of John 3.16 penciled in across the sky above it. And the editors, while praising the sketch, uh, argued that the scripture reference might offend some readers. And so Shoemaker held his ground and said that John 3.16 must be retained or he would not submit the sketch. Colonel Frank Knox, the publisher of the paper, said to his editors, he said this, Let's be sensible. If it weren't for John 3.16, there wouldn't be any Christmas. Run it. And we need more news and more publishers like that today. This was repeated faithfully every Christmas until the demise of the paper in 1978. But it's, uh, it's an amazing uh, story about how that uh, this verse has made an impact on people over the years. Now, uh, we're going to look at the uniqueness of the birth of Christ, and I want us to note some something very important. I would even say the most important teaching uh, from this well-known verse that is often misunderstood or mistakenly translated. Uh, some of the important doctrines of the Bible are the virgin birth of, Naz- of Jesus of Nazareth, his death on the cross for sin, his shed blood to pay the penalty for sin, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and His bodily second coming, they're all critical beliefs. These doctrines are essential for eternal life, but there is one doctrine that all the others kind of rest upon. It is kind of the rock-bottom foundation, if you please, of the Christian faith. Jesus of Nazareth is the only begotten Son of God. And with this core belief, all the others would be meaningless. Christianity stands upon the person of Jesus Christ as the only begotten Son of eternity past and into the future forever. He is unique because He is the only begotten Son of God. And to tamper with this doctrine touches on the very foundation of our faith. Uh, there are actually five verses in the King James Bible which clear, shows clearly that Jesus is the only begotten Son of God. Notice some of these verses. John 1.14, And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. 
John 1.18, no man has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. And of course, John 3.16, which we've already read, but we'll read it again because it is not a verse that we should ever get tired of. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And then there's John 3.18, he that believeth on him uh, is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And then you go to 1 John chapter 4 and verse 9, and you find in this was manifested the love of God toward us, because that God sent his only begotten Son into the world that we might live through him. You see, these verses reveal that the Lord Jesus was begotten of the Father. He was from the bosom of the Father. Uh, You must believe on the name of the only begotten Son of God for eternal life. He was sent into this world from heaven as the only begotten Son of God. Your eternal life depends upon the belief that Jesus is the only begotten Son of God. And again, the the importance of this doctrine cannot be overstated. Now, the, the Bible does reveal that God has other sons. For example, believers in Jesus are called the sons of God through adoption. Adam was called the Son of God. God gave the angels the title, the sons of God. Israel became God's son, and Solomon sat on the throne of Israel as the son of God. However, the Lord Jesus remains distinguished and unique from all these sons of God. He is singular and unique as the only begotten son of God with the Father from eternity. He has a different relationship with the Father. So many t- any tampering with this as the only begotten, uh, the Lord as the only begotten Son would make him one of the many sons of God in the Bible. A, a verse to, to show this follows uh, here Galatians 4 and verse 5 to redeem them that were under the law that we might receive the adoption of sons. And because ye are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his Son into the heart, your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Now, again, you might ask, why is this so important? Especially, uh, why are you talking about this, preacher? Uh, especially this time of the year when we're, you know, we're thinking about celebrating Christmas. We're th- thinking about giving gifts and we're thinking about family gatherings and so forth. Well, as has been the case for a number of years, and it seems to be on the rise, the very foundation of our faith is under attack today. We see people objecting to anything to do the anything to do with Christianity. We hear of lawsuits and all kinds of objections to references to Christ and Christmas. Has it ever occurred to you why Christmas and Easter have been singled out by the liberal elitists as days that should be de-emphasized or ignored altogether? Sure, you say, it's because they are holy days. Why then aren't Jewish and Muslim holy days being stricken, or at least played down on the calendar? Well, here's an answer to both of those questions. They aren't Christian holy days. You guessed it, the problem isn't religion. The world loves religion. The problem is Christ. 
See, that's the crux of the issue. The world hates Christ. And Christmas is a celebration of his birth. Easter or the Resurrection Sunday is a celebration of his atoning sacrifice on the cross, his resurrection from the dead. Let's face it, people. We live in a pagan, heathenistic, religious world. A world that has an affinity for religion, but no affinity for its Redeemer and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Why is that? Why does the world hate Christ so much? Well, it all revolves around a truth spelled out in several passages of Scripture. Especially Ephesians 2 and verse 2, where we are told that the world gives its allegiance to the one who is called the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that works in the children of disobedience. And then you go to Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 11 and 12, where we're reminded of the wiles of the devil. The Bible goes on to explain that the believer's struggle is not with men, that is flesh and blood, but with principalities against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. I think all too often we fail to realize that Satan is the god of this world system. In other words, he is in control. And from the very beginning, the devil has had this running warfare with Christ. The whole pagan world has aligned itself with him. It should not surprise us in the least that governments and schools and organizations and businesses would ban any mention of Christmas and replace it with things like Happy Holiday. It's their way of renouncing Christ as God's only begotten Son and the Savior of all mankind and the one they should give allegiance to. You see, they hate Him because He claimed to be God and the only way to get to heaven. You know, Satan in his plan to interfere with our worship of Jesus Christ would love to put all kinds of doubt into the minds of people concerning the truth. And one of the ways that's being accomplished is through the publishing of modern versions of the Bible that undermine our faith in God. You see, most of the modern Bible translations have altered this very doctrine, which I have said this morning is the very basis of our faith. Unfortunately, this attempt to undermine our faith appears to be largely ignored. And modern translations have replaced the words only begotten with words that change the person of Jesus Christ and thus the foundation of the faith. And yet Jesus Christ is unique. He's one of a kind. The New International Version, the NIV, is the most popular translation probably today of modern versions has completely altered the only begotten Son to the terms that are false and misleading. The NIV is typical of most modern translation. The term now used in place of only begotten are one and only, or only Son. For example, in the NIV, John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. The English Standard Version, the ESV, says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. And on the surface, that doesn't look so dangerous. But the Lord Jesus is not God's only Son. You see, this is false because God has many sons, as I've already said. 
He is God's only begotten Son. And this is unique. It's obvious that the modern translations have tampered with the very foundation of Christianity. Using the NIV alone, you cannot even prove that the Lord Jesus is the only begotten Son of God. And so the NIV fails to substantiate the very foundation of our faith. In John 1, verse 14 and verse 18, the words begotten and Son are left out. Just left out. John 3.16 and verse 18 and 1 John 4 and verse 9 are false because they remove the words only begotten and they say God's only Son. These translations are illegitimate. The modern versions have to be rejected as they are deficient. They lack the ability to even prove the very foundation of our faith. These translations lead believers away from the true person of the Lord Jesus. Modern translations which alter only begotten Son include the NIV, the Living Bible, the Revised Standard, the Message, the New Living Bible, the Contemporary English Version, the Worldwide English, the English Standard Version, many, many, many more. The New King James and the New American Standard don't alter this, but we would not recommend them for other reasons, which we won't get into this morning. But listen, folks, this is serious stuff. This is serious. It's not just a preference with this preacher. I don't just prefer my King James Bible over all the others. It's a conviction because in the King James Bible, we have God's inspired, preserved, infallible, inerrant, and perfect holy word in the English language in this magnificent King James Bible. I believe all the others are imposters. And so as we come to this Christmas season, I want us to focus on the uniqueness of Jesus Christ. And it's really through having the right translation of the Bible where we see this so clearly. And that is kind of a rather long introduction, but we must hurry on with the message. Christ was unique, first of all, as the Son of God. He's unique as the Son of God. We notice, first of all, his background was superior. If we read in Hebrews chapter 7, we find there are two priestly lines mentioned in the Scriptures, the temporary priesthood of Aaron, verses 11 and 12, and then the eternal priesthood of Melchizedek, in verse 3, of which Christ descended, verses 17 and 21. We won't take time to, to look at those verses, but just note that Hebrews chapter 7 gives us these two priestly lines. Secondly, the, his human birth was supernatural. Matthew one twenty four declares that the child conceived in Mary was of the Holy Ghost. Well, Matthew 1 and verse 20 states that as a virgin, she would be with child. Joseph was not the father of Jesus. Jesus was begotten or fathered by the Holy Ghost. Thirdly, his holy behavior was sinless. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15 declares that our Savior was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. That's important. And then 
Fourthly, his heroic, heroic blood was substitutionary. In Matthew 23, in verse 28, Christ indicated that his blood was shed for many for the remission of sins. We find that Christ's blood was pure and precious blood. First Timothy, or First Peter 1, 18 and 19, For as much as you know that you are not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish and without spot. We also find that Christ's blood was purging blood. Hebrews 1 and verse 3 says, Who being the brightness of His glory and express image of His person and upholding all things by the word of His power, when He had by Himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And then it's thirdly, preserved blood. Hebrews 12, 22 says, And ye are come into Mount Zion, unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven, and to God, God the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling, which speaketh better things than that of Abel. See that ye refuse not him that speaketh, for if they escape not who refused him that spake on earth, much more shall not we escape if we turn away from him that speaketh from heaven. So as the Son of God, Christ was unique. He was unique. He was also unique in his birth. The birth of Christ was unique, as a number of scriptures will point out to us. First of all, we find the prediction of his advent. Christ's birth was the only birth foretold at least 4,000 years prior to its occurrence. In Genesis 3 and verse 15, And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It will bruise thy head, and shall bruise his heel. Other births were predicted in advance. You find John the Baptist was predicted, his birth was predicted 400 years in advance. Samuel was nine plus months in advance. Esau and Jacob was several weeks. But none were 4,000 years in advance. Jesus' birth was unique. We note the scriptures say that uh, concerning the particular seed was predicted. That is the woman. Again, we've already mentioned Genesis 3.15 a number of times this morning. The particular sign was prophesied. She was to be a virgin. Isaiah 7.14, Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And by the way, some of the modern translations will take that word virgin and change it to young woman and thereby dilute the, the, the foundation of our faith. Thirdly, the particular site was proclaimed. And we talked about this in our Sunday school class in Micah 5.2. But thou Bethlehem Ephrathah, though thou be little among thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me, that is to be the ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. Now not only do we see the prediction of the advent, but we see the parentage of his, in his appearance. In human nature, Christ was conceived of the Holy uh, Ghost, according to Matthew 1 and verse 18. As we've already noted, our Lord did not have a human father. 
Joseph only acted in that capacity, but did not supply the conception seed. Luke 3.23, And Jesus himself began to be about 30 years of age, being as was supposed the son of Joseph. Every other human birth outside the creation of Adam had required the seed of a human male to be implanted within the womb of a woman. But this was not true of Jesus Christ, for which he was conceived in Mary's womb of the Holy Ghost, according to Matthew 1 and verse 20. Jesus' birth was unique. And then thirdly, the place of his arrival and announcement. We find here uh, a couple of places uh, mentioned, a place of his arrival. The place of his arrival was apparently in an open field, a quiet hillside in an obscure town of Bethlehem. Luke 2 and verse 7 states there were no room for him in the inn. There are really two Greek words in the New Testament for inn. The first is pandunkion, which refers to a hostile or a place with a host and provisions, which we might call today a, a B&B or a bed and breakfast. It was a lodging facility. That was a pandunkion. But the second word for inn is kataluma. Kataluma is the word that's used in Luke chapter 2 and verse 7. It's merely an enclosure with walls which travelers might put their animals for night. This type of inn has no host, has no room, has no food, has no entertainment. Even the cattle stalls were filled that night, and our Savior apparently was born out there in the open field outside the cattle stall with only a blanket on the bare ground, born outside of everything. The scripture says, Mary laid him in a manger. The manger was not a nicely varnished wooden piece of furniture with soft mattress and warm woolen blanket as often is portrayed, but apparently a feeding or watering trough for animals. And this act of condescension, whereby Christ moved from the throne in heaven, where legions of angels worshipped him, to the feeding trough of animals, is called in theological terms as self-kenosis, meaning an emptying or a humiliation of Christ. Speaking of this act, the scripture states in Philippians 2 and verse 7, he made himself of no reputation. That was the place of his arrival. Then there was the place of his announcement. The place of his announcement was again in the open field on the quiet hillside, the grazing pastures of a little obscure town of Bethlehem. It was not in the bustling, busy city of almost 30,000 people like it is today. The location of Christ's birth was just a small hamlet about five or six miles outside of Jerusalem. It's an interesting play, uh, interesting to note the places that God bypassed to make this historical announcement. It was not the place of the Roman emperor in Rome. It was not the place of the provincial governor in Jerusalem. It was not at the gate of the city where the magistrates and the influential citizens sat, nor even in the hostiles or inns or the stables. His birth announcement was made on a grassy hillside in a few, with a few unknown shepherds at a time where nearly everyone was asleep. We've seen the prediction, we've seen the parentage, we've seen the place, and then notice the participants the participants in his annunciation. It was not the emperors, as we've said. It was not the kings or the princes or the governors or the judges or the educators or the wealthy men. 
but a group of lowly shepherds. As we read there in Luke chapter 2, the shepherds. Why shepherds? Well, because shepherds were raising lambs. A large portion of which those lambs would be offered as sacrifices to God. These shepherds knew that every sacrificial lamb was a type of the coming Messiah, the true Lamb of God who would be sacrificed for the sins of the world. The implicit and immediate faith of these shepherds cannot be underestimated. They did not say, let us see if this thing has come to pass. They said, this, let us see this thing which is come to pass. The news of the Savior's birth stirred them to immediate action, for they came with haste, it tells us. They were also uh, possessed uh, correct priorities, believing the spiritual worship was more important than their secular work. For they trusted God to keep their flocks while they were, went seeking the Christ child. Who was going to watch the sheep? They also became the world's first missionaries after the birth of Christ, since they made known abroad the saying as soon as they had seen it. So you have the participants of the shepherds, and then you have the angels. The angels were the second unique participants in the Annunciation. While the scriptures record the birth of many other important people like Enoch and Elijah and John the Baptist and many more, the birth of Christ was unique because it was the only birth mentioned that was accompanied by an angelic welcome. So Christ was unique in his birth, the prediction, the parentage, the place, the participants, and then the provision of his attire. There may have been other infants born in Bethlehem that night. We don't know that for sure. It's a possible fact. But as the shepherds searched and they sought, how could they identify the right child? When you go searching for a Savior, you must make no mistake. Throughout the centuries, millions have sought a Savior. They have accepted the devil's counterfeit, just as many have accepted the counterfeit Bibles being published today. There was, however, one unmistakable sign. The Scripture twice records that the infant Jesus was wrapped in swaddling clothes. Why swaddling clothes? Swaddling clothes were long, narrow strips of cloth used to bury the dead. It's a unique sign since the mother never wrapped a newborn baby, baby in clothes for the dead. God wanted the world to know, however, that Christ was born to die. Luke 2 and verse 7 records the words wrapped and laid in speaking of Christ's birth. These are the same words mentioned again at the death of Christ in Luke chapter 23. Where speaking of Joseph of Arimathea, he states, This man went unto Pilate and begged the body of Jesus, and he took it down and wrapped it in linen, and laid it in a sepulcher that was hewn in stone. Our Savior was clothed in His birth, much like He would later be wrapped in His death. By the way, we could look once again at how many of the modern versions of the Bible change these words, and the emphasis is not there. And then, 
Notice the praises at his adoration. God chose two senior citizens to render their praises in acts of adoration and worship of the Christ child. One was Simeon in Luke chapter 2. He was the only man in the Bible to whom God promised that he would see the Messiah before his death. And upon viewing the infant child, Simeon declared, Mine eyes have seen my salvation. Anna, also in Luke 2, was a widow of either 84 years of age or a or she had been 84 years a widow. We don't really know. That may, would have made her around 100 years old, probably. But she invested her entire days and nights in the temple, fasting and praying, and was rewarded by seeing the Savior, and afterwards spake of him to all that looked for redemption in Jerusalem. And then finally, we notice the presence for his admiration. Again, we come back to Matthew chapter 2 and records the visit of the wise men at a later time to worship this newborn, the newborn Savior. Three gifts. The gifts which they brought symbolize three divine offices of Christ. There's gold, the treasure of a king. Speaks of perfection and loveliness of the king. We're told that where these wise men came from, it was a custom that they would Never approach a king without a gift. And gold, the king of metals, was a fitting gift for the king. There was frankincense, the offerings of a priest, speaks of worship and adoration. Gold was for a king. Frankincense was a gift for a priest. Frankincense was used in the temple worship, in the temple sacrifices. It was a sweet perfume that rose up to God. And often in the Bible, frankincense is symbolic of our prayers rising up to God. And then there was myrrh, the ministry of a prophet. Myrrh was a perfume that was used to embalm bodies bodies of the dead. You see, these wise men knew that this was not only a king and a priest, but also the Savior who was born to die. They knew that the child they were looking at would one day be seen on the cross. In the book of Numbers, it tells us of the star of Jacob and the scepter that would rise out of Israel, a prophecy that was coming to pass and a further prophecy that Christ was born to die for the sins of the world. And so in his birth, Christ was unique. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten, don't ever take those words out, only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Someone has written, do you know Jesus, my Savior, Jesus, the Son of God? Have you ever seen or heard of his favor, Jesus, the Son of God? Oh, sweet wonder, oh, sweet wonder, Jesus, the Son of God. How I adore him, how I love him, Jesus, the Son of God. What a wonderful blessing to know Jesus, the Son of God, and exalt him during this Christmas season. And I trust we'll praise him and celebrate his birth. We'll focus on Christ, who he was, why he came, and what he means to us today. And I'm so glad I know the Christ of Christmas. And he gives us a great reason for celebrating the uniqueness of his birth. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you again 